Hello, group. Welcome back to the uh, Stamp No Tap podcast. Tony Cicchini here. Joe Cardinal. No Nico. He's working again. Joe, how are you? Doing really good. And uh, happy belated Veterans Day out there to everybody who's listening who's a veteran. Thank you for your service, of course. Absolutely. And it was also November 10th was Marine Corps birthday. So, uh, yeah. And it was old Uncle Vinny's uh, birthday and he passed away November 8th uh, which we I always honored at and boy that's what 13 years ago um, unbelievable some of you guys who have come out to train with me met Uncle Vinny Paul Dodds especially um, they became quite friendly um, yeah boy time flies right well yeah unbelievable um... Well, I, I don't want to talk about how old I am. I just, <laughs> our topic for the day, actually, I was thinking back on like how many years have passed. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But yeah, I mean, just the, the passage of time and how, you know, um, things keep changing. It's, 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 I think it's just the, you become more and more aware of it the older you get. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah. It, I remember as a young kid, all the old, because I was raised around a bunch of old timers, World War One and World War Two people. Like my grandparents were World War Two, but there were still people around in the neighborhood or in the church that were from World War One, you know. So, yeah, they're like, the older you get, the faster time flies. Yeah, they were right. So it's not a new phenomenon. It even happened to them back then. Yeah, I remember the phrase that I think sums it up really well is that you kind of grow up slowly and then you grow old fast. So you get it coming and going, basically. That's <laughs> There's no winning. <laughs> like the lyric from this one of Sinatra's songs, youth is wasted on the young. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we just knew, like I'll speak for myself, if I knew then what I know now, you know, in, in certain things, um, yeah, it would have been a much more successful life. But, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, we here we are now. So, but, yeah, I've, uh, you know, it's it's when Uncle Vinny, you know, on November 8th, um, he died a couple of days before his birthday. Uh, ironically, um, I was training to, you know, getting in shape to film the Snap No Tap video that month, November. And uh, I would spend every night at the hospital with him. And uh, in most days, but of course, I'd go to the gym to lift while I blew my arm out, which is kind of funny in a way, because here I am, I'm down in the first floor. I'm in the emergency room of the same hospital he's at. Um, And uh, yeah, it was just kind of bizarre. (laughs) 
you know, the whole thing was just kind of a weird thing. But did so did he pass before the filming then? Or yes, yes oh, that did. must have really must have messed with your head having to film with that over. Well, yeah, I had the broken hip. I had the, the, the whole, everything, the labrum, the bicep, the collarbone, all that at the rotator cuff. Yeah, I'm all, you know, dealing with his death. It was a very difficult thing when I filmed that, uh, uh, the snap no tap later in, in November. And then um, knowing that I couldn't get surgery at all because they already had this thing lock, stock, and barrel, you know. Uh, I didn't even tell them about all my injuries. You know, I just showed up and, you know, I had my arm out of the sling and just let's go film. Um, and I didn't get my surgery until the following February, you know, so several months, three months, whatever later, which was a fiasco too with that. But yeah, it was tough. Um, and Paul Newman had just died. I remember mentioning that to uncle Vinny and uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was just rough, rough time. So has the arm like that, I'm imagining after that surgery that the arm never fully recovers, even with the, the surgery. Well, with this, well, this arm never got the surgery. But what got me mad about this arm is that the doctor that I had, I won't mention his name, but he was the chief of surgery at the, the, the one hospital I ended up having to go to. He purposely did not fix the bicep tendon. He didn't fix the rotator cuff because he just wanted me literally to stop doing what I was doing. He wanted me to stop heavy lifting. He wanted me to stop all this fighting stuff and all this training. I didn't even know the guy until that day of that, until I, you know, got him to be my surgeon. Who is he to make these decisions? You know, um, so, yeah, I never got any of that. He, all he did was shave down my collarbone and reattach the labrum, which I still think I have problems with. Because when I try to lift now, there's clicking here on my collarbone. Uh I have to be very careful. I don't do any more overhead lifts. Um, so yeah, I, that, who is he to do that? You know, to, to make that judgment on me. You're in there. It's not going to, you know, stitch up the rotator cuff. It's, what difference does it make? You know, it's not going to, what's it going to add? 10 minutes? Surgery, you know, insurance was covering it anyway. So yeah, you know, in, in, in a labrum, just the labrum is a long recovery. But when you have everything else, involved yeah it was it was tough um but yeah that actually happened uh election day or or the day before the election day whatever it was i didn't even get a chance to vote because i was in the emergency room so um yeah then afterwards i go upstairs to see uncle Vinny, and i'm in the sling and you know, they didn't do anything for me in the emergency room. They're just like, here, you got to go see these, you know, you got to find an orthopedic surgeon. And that was the big thing. Um, and uh, so I saw one guy who was an old timer who was going to cut me wide open. And, you know, he didn't do the, uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, arthroscopy. Arthroscopy, yeah. yeah. So then I found another one who... We were, he was a big shot in Chicago. We were booked. We were, let's do it. And then like three days before the surgery, he calls me. He literally calls me. He calls me and says, well, we don't take your insurance. I'm like, what? But I'm willing to work out a deal with you. The surgery was like 50 grand. He says, you know, I'll make payments with you. I'm like, no, I have insurance. I'll just find Why would I pay you 50 grand out of my own pocket for this? I have insurance. I'll find another doctor. 
So I found another doctor and the clock was ticking here. You know, um, I just needed some relief, temporary relief uh, for pain because I knew I couldn't get the surgery because like I said, I was filming later that month in Colorado. Uh, so yeah, I eventually found a surgeon through my friend, Dan, the, the Cook County Sheriff, my next door neighbor at the time. It was his surgeon. Um, so yeah, that's how that all went down. Mm. So I saw him before I, I, well, I don't remember now if I saw him before I filmed the, the video or not. I don't, that I don't remember now, but I do, I think it was because I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, we had to schedule it in advance. And then, you know, this, it was a Friday the 13th of February. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, of all days, you know, <laughs> yeah. But, and it was downtown, it was on the lakefront pretty much, or close to the lake where I had the hot, where, you know, where the surgery was, it was day surgery, but you had to have somebody pick you up because, you know, you went out, they put you out. It was a general uh, anesthesia, which I got sick from, but yeah, it was interesting. Hmm. Well, I could talk about my, uh, my meniscus and my knee torn. I could tell about that surgery. I was lucky that went well though. Um, And this was years ago in the nineties when this happened. And I've been lucky that my, that knee is still has not uh, degenerated any further considering that I still, train fairly regularly but uh instead of doing that i think it'd be time to kind of do our plugs before we get into the the meat of the program um so first and foremost uh we've made this announcement the past few shows but we are retiring the tri c program so if you're looking for getting authentic catch wrestling training from tony this is the best way you can do it for yourself the best you know uh price performance for you because basically you get uh lifetime access to tony through you know through video training you get immediate access to all his videos and i think tony we extended this to the afterlife at, during halloween correct yes, For those yes. Who sign up. yeah so, so you get that and you get live in person if you're in chicago as well. right so oh. yeah in, in person or in the spirit if it's the afterlife um but you have um yeah basically uh this lock this pricing in because this pricing will not return it's kind of a ridiculous uh, the amount of money you pay for what you have, you know, access to for the rest of your training days. You can come in and, you know, train at, uh, you know, Tony's place occasionally and coordinate that. And a lot of people are doing that. Um, you know, some of the initial people, there's testimonies up on our YouTube site about how that works, but you really can't do better as far as the most flexible and most amount of access to uh, getting catch and boxing training, you know, from Tony. Defense, fitness, all of it. Everything I know, you'll get the know in time. Yeah, so that that's yeah perfect access to that. Um, we also have our uh, membership for those who cannot af- afford, you know, uh, in-person training at other levels. At a minimum, we ask that people who enjoy this podcast or or use our free content on YouTube uh, to pitch in monthly, just kind of like a Patreon style tell you deal. We have two levels, you know, the thank you five dollar a month level, which is very appreciated for those who have joined up. Uh, it means a lot to us. Uh, that you know you're listening and that you, you're telling us you care, um, and then we've got a ten dollar a month uh, level, which we provide monthly videos, new videos, uh, you know, basically little impromptu training sessions uh, with Tony, myself, uh, Brian, Denise, you know, whoever's on hand. So you're getting access into that. You know, a lot of times it's answers to questions from students or members. Uh, so we kind of deal with that, but it's brand new content on a monthly basis that you have access just for ten dollars a month. So one of those two should work for everybody out there. Honestly, if you're listening, something should work um, for you. Um, we also want to plug some of our friend schools out there. Uh, Bender Marsh Arts and Fitness up on the north side. If you're looking for gi jiu-jitsu, 
Uh, he now has judo and Muay Thai, so a really well-rounded school and uh, a really friendly environment, great guys. Uh, we've had a couple of the people on, you know, Melody here is another coach from there that was on our show recently and uh, Blaine as well. So high level talent at, at that school. So uh, you can't do wrong for that. If you're looking for authentic, probably the most authentic Muay Thai instruction in the Midwest, for sure in the Chicagoland area, Rick Solo's Akai Academy, also on the north side. Um, you know, he's just been to Thailand dozens and dozens of times. It's been his life's passion and he loves sharing it. So we encourage that. And of course, if you're looking for no-gi grappling uh, and jiu-jitsu, uh, 10th Planet Chicago, uh, you know, Josh Pacini, look him up. Uh, a great guy, a tough group of guys, a really good group to work with. So those are three friend schools of ours that we highly recommend. And um, yeah, I think that's it. So on to the topic. So we wanted to kind of veer off our normal martial arts focus uh, somewhat for the day, right, Tony? Correct. <clears throat> Correct. Just, just looking to have kind of a casual comment. And you and I are both movie fans, I would, I would think. Correct? Correct. So this is going to be kind of our Cisco and Ebert moment of, you know, at the movies with Joe and Tony. Yeah. People don't even probably remember who Cisco and Ebert are. Did you, when you were in Cleveland, did they make it out by you? Did you guys watch them? Yeah, they were, they were national. Okay. Because I used to start off on PBS here in Chicago on our channel 11. It was, I think it was at the movies at that point, but then they went national. I don't know at what point they crossed over, but ever since I was a kid, uh, they were on. Those were the movie reviewers from the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, they became famous later on for the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. But they used to just do like regular three and four star ratings. And back in the 70s, they were much more prone to fight about what movies were good and not. And that was when it was a lot of fun to watch that show. So, um, but now I know it's, it'll be interesting because I think we have very different, I think different perspectives on movies. I bet you, we, we, I wonder what we have as far as overlap, as far as movies that we like or not. Because I think my tastes are maybe more mainstream. You know, I probably watch... And I think you tend to veer towards like older, more, yeah. um, you know, uh, unique films. So like, what are, like, what are, let's just start off, like, what's your favorite film of all time? Well, okay, so a lot of it is like food that depends on your mood, but I will go out and just say this straight out. My favorite film of all time won the Oscar in 1946 for best film. Uh, best Years of Our Lives, that's the name of it. It was about basically about returning World War II veterans. Um, the movie was way ahead of its time because it addressed certain topics, uh, infidelity, you know, a, a cheating wife, basically, alcoholism, uh, and uh, handicap. Um, and it was, uh, you know, or disabled, as, as the term is now. And it was very, um, you know, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, the one character that I said with the with the uh, unfaithful wife, he also suffered from what would be now known as PTSD. So yeah, it was it was a very touching movie. It is in certain elements it I could relate to. Um, so that is my all time all time favorite movie. Uh, and then of course I'll also throw in you know the Godfather Godfather Part Two for different. That's an epic. That's different. Uh, reasons, but yeah, I go with the, the best years of our lives for me. What about you? Let me talk about the best years of our lives because I was vaguely aware of it, but because I knew it was like one of your favorite or your favorite film, yeah. uh, I went to start watching it um, recently, and I also was impressed at how hardcore it was, or I should say, um, 
deep it was, considering, like you said, it was 1946. So Correct. this is right after World War II. Um, and to really, you know, you'd think that the country, the last thing they want to deal with, I don't know what the mood of the country was. Obviously, I was neither of us were there at the time. Uh, but, you know, I get the impression that it was very, you know, uh, obviously very patriotic, very rah-rah pace. And this movie was dealing with the aftermath, the hard aftermath for a lot of these veterans coming home. And maybe it's very timely, you know, with Veterans Day, too, that a lot is. So for them to shine a spotlight on, you know, uh, you know, right away, I think. I mean, the, the, the kind of timing of that film to me was kind of uh, uh I don't know if shocking or just kind of audacious. I was, I was pretty impressed that they were willing to, you know, it wasn't all flag waving and, you know, heroes welcomes, unfortunately, you know, I think most returning veterans have, you know, had a lot of tough times. And like, even now I know that the suicide rate uh, among veterans is like twice that of, um, uh, you know, civilians of the same, you know, age population. So uh, the fact that this movie kind of at least put the foot in the water to try and address that and, and, and expose that. I was really impressed with that. Just to, as far as talking about like, you know, the human condition and topics like that, that that's impressive. That's stuff you didn't see again, really until like in my, the Vietnam era, you know, heavier movies are dealing with those wars. Um, I can't think of anything else like that on that level. So, um, but to answer your question, uh, my favorite movie of all time uh, is the original King Kong. I saw. So talk about the opposite ends of the spectrum. That's very, it's very, definitely shows how kind of very different. Mine um, uh, is definitely in the realm of fantasy. Uh, but it's interesting because most people think, I think I saw that as a kid on television, like, and it was probably the first movie to make me cry. I think like I was just, I think it's very interesting. Like I could do an entire podcast talking about that film. Um, you know, most pop people think of it as just kind of a giant monster movie, kind of a special effects, um, you know, extravaganza, which it was for its time. I mean, considering that they did this during the Depression, that they did it all in camera with, you know, like tiny little puppets. Uh, the look of it is, is amazing what they were able to accomplish. Uh, but the other thing to me that was amazing is that uh, my comment on it is um, and why I think that story transcends and became iconic. Uh, where it wasn't just like another Jurassic Park, where it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just another big monster on the loose kind of, although it was really the first one, uh, the really the giant monster run amok kind of a thing. Um, so I have to, I'm so into that movie that I read the novelization of it, which was the first novelization of any movie is my understanding. And also some of the script, you can find the original script online. But my reason for bringing that up is that um, really to me, the artist the artistry of uh, both the animators and the, the music composers um, really changed the impact of the end of that and the, to me, the meaning of the film. So the, the, what my understanding is that most of the creators, the, the writers and, and producers and things, their goal was just to make a big special effects extravaganza, just a big monster movie. You know, and you can kind of see that from the movie posters too. Uh, but because the animators uh, Willis O'Brien was the main animator, uh, but there are others who worked on his team. They really humanized the ape, I guess, or made him alive and gave him emotion, gave Kong. So at the end there, and along with the soundtrack, uh, at the end, uh, on film only, really, it doesn't come across in any of the other mediums that this story is portrayed. Uh, he becomes the sympathetic character. He becomes a victim. You know, he's when he dies at the end, a lot of the people, not everybody, but a lot of the people who watch that 
see that as a tragic ending, you know? And so to me, the movie is a tragedy. And I think it's, uh, uh, to me, I, when I think on it, it's almost, uh, it, it becomes symbolic of man's relationship with nature. I mean, it's funny that I'm getting deep about this movie, but I really think so. It really shows that through uh, uh, exploitation and greed, you know, uh, our natural resources uh, are misused and abused and ultimately ends in tragedy, you know? So to me, it's like a cautionary tale of what can go wrong with our unchecked, you know, uh, basically, like I said, greed and ignorance. And, you know, uh, the, not only the loss of natural wonders, like, um, and like an amazing animal like Kong, uh, but also a lot of human life is lost. And I think that that message kind of transcends the monster movie thing. And I think maybe even as a kid watching that at some level, and I think it hit me kind of hard too, because I grew up with a ton of pets. I had like a couple dogs, five or six cats. I lived like in a, in a mini zoo, basically. My mom was an animal nut. So immediately uh, I didn't see Kong as like a threat. You know, he, I mean, I'm sure a giant animal would be scary, but like I still, you know, uh, thought to relate to it like I would like my dogs or cats. So um, anyways, that movie had a huge impact on me. And I still love it to this day. I'm still kind of in awe of what they did. Um, so, you know, I loved Peter Jackson's remake. I think that was super cool. I think he clearly loved that movie like I did, uh, and subsequent remakes of that movie. So like, like there was the one in the seventies, Dino De Laurentiis, they kind of got the idea. They kind of understood the subtext and they brought it to the forefront. Um, and this again with Peter Jackson, the same thing, uh, you know, who truly is the victim here? Um, so they've taken that story and they've expounded on it. So I, I'd like all versions of it. Uh, like Peter Jackson's is, is, is fantastic, but I love the original still stands in my mind. Uh, yeah, The Godfather, of course, like you said, it's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing piece of work. Um, it's like a Rembrandt painting. It just looks beautiful. You know, it's one of those things that when I compare it to other films, it, it's kind of amazing to compare it to anything else of that era. I don't know how he did it. Um, obviously, great source material to start for a really, like you said, epic story to tell. Um, but it just, yeah, everything about that movie is fantastic. So I'm going to deviate on that and follow up question with you. Which Godfather is the best Godfather movie? Part two. Part two, huh? Yeah. But you see, now, again, when I was a kid, the first major movie that influenced me probably was The Hustler, okay? Because I saw that before I saw Best Years of Our Lives and The Godfather. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, but I read the book by Mario Puzo. I, 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 it was a big, thick, black book, small one, but I read it, uh, The Godfather, and so I, I had kind of a, an idea. The movie was a little different in certain uh, aspects, but for me, no, I liked The Godfather Part II. Um, it, it kind of focused, obviously, on Michael, uh, Michael Corleone, uh, and, but, but I have a connection, I think I mentioned, to The Godfather Part One. Uh, they're both to me almost equal in a way, but I, I, I can say that off the top of my head, The Godfather Part Two is probably the only movie that I can think of where the sequel was at least as good as the original. Um, I'm, there, there may be others I can't, I can't think of right now. I mean, I did like Rocky Two, only because he became the champion, right? Uh, so, but we're not comparing those kind of movies to, uh, to The Godfather or. Uh, best years of our lives but um and then as i got older i i appreciated the godfather sagas more for their cinematic like you said they're beautiful movies they're you know glamorous uh, kind of like with the uh 
Citizen Kane with the cinematography and all of that. Uh, and I, I became a little more anti, you know, it, it doesn't paint Italian Americans in a good light. You know, um, what this pretty much all, everybody thinks Italians are all mob guys. Um, and, and, you know, that's just not the case, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I like both, but yeah, I'd rather probably watch part two. I did not like part three. I, I can't sit through part three. Yeah, that's such a shame. Yeah. Now, to your point, I, I've seen other film series where the sequel is good or as better. I mean, the one that comes to my mind, obviously, is, uh, is, is Star Wars. I think The Empire Strikes Back is probably the, the best film in all of the Star Wars you know, franchise. And so they surpassed the original. Uh, that would come to my mind. But you know, subsequent films, the decline happens fairly quickly in that series where, you know, the third one and then, you know, it just gets, it, it's very hard to find a good one after that. Um, but yeah, it's like, I don't, there's very few trilogies where all three are on par. I think maybe the nerds out there would probably point to Lord of the Rings. Um, but that was definitely, I think in some ways they learned their lesson and decided from the get-go, they're going to make all three back to back, you know, they had, they kind of kept momentum. They kept the cast together. They kept the creative teams together. So there wasn't that disconnect. Cause I wonder if part of the problem with the Godfather part three is that it was a long time between like two and three, like one and two are almost, weren't they, uh, did they both win best picture like year after year? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you've got to be unique in film. Um, so I think I lean towards the Godfather one. Uh, I, but yeah, it's that's it's got to be that's got to be that's like a real Sophie's choice for me, man. I don't know which one I like better, uh, uh, but I just kind of like the um, well, that era of a, Michael's rise to power. There was a version of it. I forgot if it's called the director's version or some something like that, uh, where I saw and it puts everything together. In oh, like chronological. Yeah, and it shows scenes that were not seen. All right, they're the added footage and. And it kind of makes clarification, um, you know, for example, uh, going back to uh, Godfather 1 in, in, with the movie producer Wolf, I mean, it clearly shows in this special edition that he's a pedophile, okay? It, it shows that. There was a scene where, you know, uh, where, where Tom Hagen was at his house, and in the original cut, Hagen asks to get a ride, you know, back to the airport because, you know... Um, Don Vito Corleone, is, he likes to hear bad news right away. Well, in this extended version, they show him leaving the, the uh, dining room, going into this foyer, and upstairs, leaning over the balcony, is a obviously scantily clad underage girl, okay? He, she was there for, uh, you know, the, the, the producer, you know, uh, so yeah, that, they they showed a lot of things like that, and they showed um, Michael's the murderers in Sicily that killed his wife. They show they showed them in this movie back in the United States and what happened to them. So that was that's actually a great uh, version if you have it. I don't have that version. I have just the regular uh, one and two. I probably have three as well, but I like I said, I don't I don't watch that. But, yeah, yeah I like no, when you get to see extended scenes like that. The extra scenes yeah. like that are always cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it'd be like, yeah, or, or sometimes you'll get a commentary from surviving uh, cast members or crew that give you little insights into things. But um, 
Well, no, those were epics, you know, there, there's no question about it. Uh, parts of it, again, are a little over the top, but, um, you know, all in all, it was uh, a look into a, into a previous era of this country, you know, right after World War II um, is when this Godfather, you know, was set pretty much. Um, you know, Godfather Part Two shows before that, you know, when mm-hmm. he's born and all of that. But yeah, it was interesting, you know. Um, the one criticism I hear from it, because uh, besides the fact that it, it you know, the stereotypes of all Italian Americans being mafia related, and we know they're not, we know some of them cook pizzas. Um, what else do you guys do? But <laughs> um, we sing really good. We love to sing. <laughs> uh, but uh, it also glamorized it. You know, I mean, it really, like I said, it was a beautiful looking film and it was like, there was beautiful people in a beautiful environment when in reality they were, these are people doing horribly ugly things, you know, hurting a lot of people. Um, And so uh, that's the one criticism I hear from it. It doesn't change that I'm not going to watch it every time, you know, I get a chance to just because it's just so, like I said, it's even though you're rooting for like criminals, basically, it's kind of criminal against criminal thing. Uh, what's your favorite scene from The Godfather? Do you have one? The first? Yeah, let's Godfather. do the first one. Yeah, let's go. Well, I have a personal... Well, okay, I don't, all right, let me put it this way. I'm not going to... All right, the beginning, pretty much the wedding scene, only because if you watch the wedding scene, the band, uh, the orchestra, there's an accordionist playing, okay? Uh, his name is Angelo De Pippo, who I got to know, and oh, who I yeah. kind of did long-distance... You know, this is what, like, right after um, I had my aneurysm, and, uh, you know, he gave me lessons, basically, telling me what, you know, this and that. So his scenes, even to this day, when I watch the movie, I always smile because there he is. You know, I, I knew the guy. I actually got to meet him when he was here in Chicago. Um, he performed. He was the uh, musical director for uh, uh, Robert Merrill, the opera singer. Who we I got to meet the next day. We all had breakfast, a group of us. Uh, but they were performing in Skokie at some uh, uh, place, and I had my physical therapist with me. Um, and Peter Nero was actually, a, who God, what a great piano player he was. I wasn't expecting all of this. Um, so yeah, so somewhere I got a picture of Angelo and I. I had my crutches, and but Angelo was he was a great is a great guy. I haven't spoken to him in a long time. But um, so so I have a personal thing with with that. Uh, so I'd have to go with that scene. But taking Angelo out of the equation, um, I don't know. I kind of like the scene uh, where Luca Brasi is is going uh, to turn on uh, Don Vito Corleone. Yeah. Well, we should probably say spoiler alert. We're going to talk about spoiler alert. Well, whatever. Yeah. So I won't even go into details. And no, I'll no, just... go ahead. It's the Godfather's been out there for what fifty years now. Yeah. So, so you know that scene is um, fairly realistic. Okay, that is a realistic scene. The scene with Sonny and his demise was over the top. That was a little hard to that you know no, but. The uh, Luca Brazzi scene uh, was fairly realistic, uh, believe me. So, um, and then there was other movies that came out afterwards, 
you know, the crazy stuff with the De Niro was in and Joe Pesci, and those are all over the top, but they use some real life, you know, they base a lot of stuff on Mikey Spilat, uh, Tony Spilatro from Chicago and things like that. And so they put those scenes in the movie, um, pretty brutal, uh, pretty accurate. You know, they changed it around, but those scenes were, you know, shit went down rough. But yeah, no, those are probably the two scenes out of The Godfather that um, I like the, the best, you know, that I can I think like- of. I love uh, the two scenes I love. Uh, they're Michael scenes. One is um, at the restaurant uh, with the oh. police. Yeah, that uh, uh, it was so tense, you know, um, and you can almost feel that moment because Michael knows what he's going to do and all this activity is going around. And the way they do the sound is you can hear that. At least the impression I get is that Michael's tuning it all out. He's focused on what he's got to do. And that probably that anxiety and that focus, that tension of, of what he's about to attempt uh, and, and the consequences, like you feel it. And it's just subtle. Just they zoom in on him really closely. He's pretending to listen to the people talk. They're, you know, they're eating there. And it just sets the stage so like powerfully to me. That to me is uh, really was a, a pretty awesome scene. And the yeah. other one I really, yeah, the other one I really felt in my gut was one, um, Michael is going to visit his father at the hospital and he realizes that no one's there to protect him. And he know he knows what's going down. And uh, I think it, was it the caretaker or the, uh, uh, Enzo, the, the big- yeah, they get him to stand in front, put his yeah. collar up and put his hand in his pocket in that moment. Again, the, the power of that tension of like, you know, we've got to, we've got to bluff this here because this is life or death. You really feel that. Uh, and you also see Michael's leadership. He immediately jumps in. He's like, okay, this is a scenario. I've got to take care of this. This is what I've got available to me, you know, and people's lives are on the line. And it was just, like I said, those two scenes were very powerful to me. Uh, there's probably dozens of other ones that I love to see. Like I said, it's one of those movies where scene by scene, it just, they're, they're just all great, you know? Oh yeah. And you know, for your father, for your father, that's why Enzo was there. But yeah, you know, uh, if you take out the uh, criminal element, the criminal aspect of it, let's say, um, it is a time machine. There were, at least in the Italian communities, revered men like the Godfather, okay? Uh, some were not always organized crime. They could have been, you know, artisans or musicians or, you know, whatever. But there, there was a tight-knit community. It really was, Uh and, uh, you know, so I was not raised in an Italian neighborhood, unfortunately, but you, when you went to Cleveland with me, you saw the Cleveland's, there was two little Italy's, at least in my time, but that one was always the main one that we saw, Murray Hill, and it's still thriving, uh, probably more so now, I would think. Um, but yeah, so that part, yeah, there, you always had those uh, uh, local like not celebrities even, but just the people that you knew that you could go to if you had a problem. You you could talk to these people. Um, the Italians, I don't want to get into this whole thing, but the Italians had it rough. The immigrants had it very rough when they came over here. Okay, the, I believe that they, they had the highest infant mortality rate and they were living in abject poverty. Uh, they, you know, they the people immigrated in waves and the Italians were not the first ones over here. So... And there was a lot of uh, 
you know, prejudice against the Italians. Uh, they didn't have the advantage of, let's say, some of the Irish or the English that came over here. They spoke the language. The Italian immigrants, you know, for the most part did not. So there was a lot of, you know, let's stick amongst, our, amongst ourselves really tight. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what happened. So, and then, and there is also a difference between the Sicilians and the Italians. And of course, a lot of Sicilians came up through Louisiana, New Orleans, in, in addition to, um, Ellis Island. So you have that thing going on. Uh, that's an interesting, uh, period in, you know, in, 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 in America, really. Um, I don't know if you were ever exposed to any of that being in Chicago. I don't think you were not raised in an Italian neighborhood either. No. And my father, who was the, you know, the Sicilian where I get my uh, Italian ancestry from, uh, he passed away when I was young and that whole side of the family had a lot of them had moved away. So I, you know, besides my mother had learned to cook marinara for my father. So that was about all I got, uh, you know, was weekly pasta. Uh, but that was about all my Italian heritage really passed down to me, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, so I, I really never got to see that, that, you know, never went to little Italy, you know, uh, we stayed mostly up on the North side, the far North side, never went down there. So, um, yeah, no, I was never in touch with that community, unfortunately. Well, I have Italian culture to a degree at the house, you know, along with the former living in a former Polish neighborhood, going to a Polish school for a while, Polish church. So I was exposed to both of those cultures, but I did not live in, in, in the neighborhood, which is different. So like, uh, like when I moved to Chicago, you know, I, I hung out in one of the Italian neighborhoods quite a lot and just hearing their stories. Of, of even well even now you still have some remnants of it um but yeah it's it's just we did i didn't have that you know uh and it's there it's a click you know like when i first started hanging out because i came from a different italian section here in chicago there was like pockets of rivalries they didn't like me at first you know they thought i was one of the rats you know coming in from a you know from elmwood park you know and they did it took them a while to warm up to me you know mm -hmm. So, but Cleveland had Little Italy, Murray Hill, and it had Collinwood. So it had those two areas. But even by the time out, like with me, it was changed, especially Collinwood was changing. Even when I was a kid, um, Little Italy or Murray Hill was uh, uh, still trying to hang on. Um, it, Murray Hill is a very scenic area. I mean, it's smack dab in the middle of Cleveland's greatest culture uh, area and educational area. Okay. Um, as you, as you witnessed, you know, the art museum, Severance Hall, all the hospitals and everything are over there. And they were there even in the, in the seventies when I was growing up. So uh, sort of it mirrors kind of like little Italy here, you know, Taylor street uh, with, you know, with the hospitals and, and things like that. Uh, except you don't have the museums and, and what have you. Uh, Cleveland's Little Italy is more authentic than Taylor Street. Um, Taylor Street, to me now, and has been for the last couple, I don't know, at least 15, 20 years, very uh, touristy, more, more or less, you know. So you mentioned the Rocky films. So, um, yeah, I, I think as a kid, I, I liked Rocky II better. I didn't actually as a kid, I don't think I distinguished between the two of them. 
my uncle had recorded them from cable or something. And so I would just watch the tapes. I think he had one and two back to back and I would just watch them, you know, over and over again. And I think, yeah, I just, I love the training montages. It's funny how, like, when you look back on it, uh, you know, there's scenes of Rocky, like using a sledgehammer in a junkyard and, um, yeah, just all the kind of primitive stuff that the way he was training um, it's come back in vogue in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of those kind of uh, mechanisms uh, to various degrees uh, have come back. So, uh, yeah, I really like that. Actually, I have, it's been a while since I've seen those films. Uh, I should go back and watch them because I've, you know, I've since been to Philadelphia. I wonder how much of that, you know, I've been up the stairs, of course. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think those were great. Um, the third film, again, uh, not exactly the same kind of movie. Uh, of course, any movie with Mr. T is going to be a great movie, just by, by definition. Uh, but great in a different way, I guess. Uh, but I, I don't think I even saw any of the subsequent Rocky films. I pretty much did it till the last couple. But, well, the thing about Rocky Three was uh, his real life transformation i mean rocky in the movie rocky he looked good physically i mean carl weathers was better built in rocky two he just lost all of his musculature he was big he was bulkier um but in rocky three you know he looked like a mr america i mean he was lean and just so you know cut i couldn't believe it as a matter of fact i didn't get to see a lot of movies but i i, I remember my buddy and I went to some theater to see whatever movie it was. This is before Rocky three came out. So anyway, as the crowd is coming out of the movie before we could go in, there was this lady. And I remember her, her, hear her saying, my God, he looks like Mr. America. I'm like, what is she talking about? So when we got into the movie, whatever movie it was, we were going to see, they showed a preview of Rocky three. Well, immediately I knew exactly who she was referring to because Stallone was unbelievably uh, in shape. I mean, he got, I guess even better, in Rocky Four, but I mean, goodness. So that was the biggest takeaway for me. Um, but yeah, Rocky was was very inspirational to me because I, you know, I was into boxing then and everything. Rocky Two was a bigger movie for me because he won. Right, I was a big Rocky fan, and he and he and he won. Uh, and after that, yeah, it, it, it's all been pretty much downhill. Uh, the uh, one with, uh, what would it be, Rocky Five, I guess they would call it, unless they had a, a name for it, um, with uh, Tommy Morrison. There was a couple scenes in there that kind of hit home um, to me. Uh, but, yeah, he peaked. He peaked early with probably Rocky. I, you know, Rocky Two, okay. But, um, and then a couple of my students took me to see Rocky Balboa. That's uh, that's the last one I saw actually. And that was years ago. And we went to some theater where they, uh, serve you food where you could get food, which I thought was cool. How is it watching the boxing scenes? Not realistic at all. I mean, you know, I mean, he, they would never, he'd be dead in real life. No, it was, they weren't. That's the thing. Stallone's boxing was terrible. Now I'll tell you, uh, um, Carl Weathers looked great. I mean, he really did. Uh, you know, I mean, even Mr. T to a degree, because he did a little amateur boxing and he did that tough man stuff um, beforehand. So I had already seen Mr. T go at it. 
But, you know, uh, uh, Carl Weathers really looked good. You know, he did. Uh, he moved nice, and he was a parody of, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali. Um, so, but, yeah, the thing with with uh, the Rocky character, yeah, he was, you know, not really skilled. You know, he's just a tough guy. Um, and there is a difference between being skilled and being tough. You know, I mean, okay, we're talking fictional here, but, Rocky Balboa was tougher than Apollo Creed, but Apollo Creed was more skilled. And in that, in that movie, in, the, in those first two, at least, um, you know, it, it showed that Stallone's indomitable spirit, his, his, his toughness, you know, won out. And for that, that was symbolic, probably for not just me, but for a lot of not just kids either, just for people who, who probably didn't have the breaks in life, who came from the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks, everything that I could uh, align myself with. And so that really gave me great motivation. Um, it was hard for me to, uh, I could not, what's the word I'm looking for? I could not uh, jump on the Apollo Creed thing. I love, I love his physicality, how great a shape he was in and his boxing skills, but I could not relate to that extraordinary wealth, extraordinary wealth that he had. You know, um, that was a like another world to me, another planet. Whereas you saw Rocky, how he lived. That's how I lived. You know, I lived in that shitty neighborhood like that. You know, so I could relate. Yeah, I remember going back when I first started to learn to box as a kid at Daggerberg. So I'd, I'd watched Rocky before. And like I said, uh, whenever they'd have the training montages or whatever, I'd get all hyped up and I'd have to go work out. You know, I'd go for a run or I'd, you know, work out with whatever I had. Uh, but after getting some basic boxing training and going back, all of a sudden it's like, it's kind of like the scales fell from my eyes and I was watching and it's like, oh my God, I, what are they doing in there? You know, yeah. it, was, it was shocking to me. Uh, and it's funny how with a, even a slight education, watching something, the difference you're right. The movie's not about boxing technique at all. It's, 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 it's other, you know, that's not the focus of it, but it is, it is hard to watch once you, that part of it, I suppose, at least once you start to do some boxing and things, um, uh, it almost feels disrespectful that they're showing it in that light, but I, obviously they're doing it for more dramatic effect, you know, uh, oh. you know, so, uh, but as far as Stallone movies, uh, the other one I love, I love First Blood. That's another movie that had a, a big impact on me, um, especially the first half of that, um, uh, where he's being hassled by cops and then he kind of lashes back out. Uh, I love the, um, you know, the guerrilla warfare that he does out in the forest. Uh, that, that to me is on par with his Rocky movies. I love that. I think it may be the, my favorite action movie of all time. Uh, it's been imitated a lot um, and the sequels were terrible. You know, I mean, if you, if you enjoy them for their, their horrible campiness, you can enjoy the sequels, but um, uh, they really missed out. And the other thing I like about the movie too, is it was, um, it was right after a lot of movies like the deer hunter apocalypse now. And uh, that talked about the horrors of the war and, you know, all the, the human cost of it, but it really didn't, celebrate the veterans as much where this one it really showed them as as you know as being you know 
people we should admire. And I, you know, I think our, like during the seventies and I think this movie came out in the early eighties. Uh, so I think that tide was turning, but I think that that had a, a big impact of shifting, uh, you know, and reminding everybody how heroic a lot of these heroes were, uh, you know, these veterans were and what they went through and what they're capable of. So granted, I mean, obviously this is an exaggeration where, you know, it's taken, but uh, I just love that movie to death. What, what, what are some of your other favorite action movies? Action movies. Uh, well, I mean, you know, yeah, First Blood, you know, Rambo, yeah, because we had a, yeah, that, that, that hit, that hit kind of close. I mean, you know, we knew somebody that killed themselves that was a Vietnam veteran, ended up committing suicide. Uh, when that movie came out, there was some guy in Cleveland that copycatted Rambo and took off into the Metro Parks, you know, and, and did his thing. I, you know, it, it made the news locally. They actually had to capture him. I don't think they killed him, but, um, but uh, boy, see now action movies, uh, you know, I'm a stickler for like authenticity. So a lot of action movies, you know, it just, wow, that's just so over the top, not real. Like today's movies, I cannot watch with, and I'm not alone in this, uh, the CGI and all this crazy stuff that they do that is just not possible. I've even seen interviews with, with old, older stuntmen, not super old, but my age, a little bit older, who who are like, man, this is, you know, they put us out of business and, you know, this is not realistic. Mm -hmm. But um, I do like Die Hard, the first Die Hard. I, I, I'll, I'll watch that when it's on, you know, um, I would consider that an action movie. Oh, sure. uh, Some would I'll say it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, they do claim it's a Christmas movie, several. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, uh, well, there's another movie that I'm just going to throw out there. It's not an action movie, but it's a more, it's an Italian movie called 29th Street. If anybody's ever heard of it, watch it. It's a good one. Um, that's a really good movie. Pope of Greenwich Village is another Italian movie that shows some mob shit, but doesn't make Italians look bad. I just wanted to throw those out there. But yeah, I would have to go with Die Hard unless you can come up with some more that I'm not thinking of right now. Well, I'll throw some out there at you. Uh, what, how did you like uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, I never saw it. You never have you you not seen it yet? No. Wow, that that's that's you know what's the matter with you, man? That's that's a classic of all time. I actually have a great story with it too, because obviously it's become a franchise, and uh, a lot of the sequels have not lived up. Uh, but that first movie, boy, um, I got to see it in the theater. My, I was with my, uh, uh, I was very fortunate actually. I got to see a lot of movies in the theater. I got to see um, the original Star Wars when I was six years old in the theater. And that was like a mind blowing experience because I didn't know movies could be that like awe inspiring. I mean, nowadays, like you talk about CGI, I don't think kids today, at least visually can have their minds blown by a movie. I mean, maybe some of the Marvel movies have done that, but it's, it's much harder now because everything's possible. There's nothing that they can put on screen, you know, that if they can, someone can dream it up, they can draw it in a computer now. So in some of the ways that the, that ability of being awed by that. I don't know if that exists anymore, but yeah, like I had a buddy uh, that I met later on. He was a work buddy, but he was about the same age and he saw Star Wars as a kid in the theater as well. And he basically described it as like Moses seeing God. Like he came out of there, like, you know, Charlton Heston being stunned with the 10 commandments. 
just having, you couldn't believe what he saw. And that was my experience too. It was like life altering. And so I was, I, this was a long tangent about movies, but uh, my point being that I kind of grew up in an era where I got to see some, like what I'd call very classic movies, you know, uh, in the theater and, and just being hit full force by them. Uh, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was the other one. And I was very fortunate. My um, One of my best friends growing up in grammar school, his father was uh, uh, British and he had fought in World War II. He had fought, um, he, you know, uh, he was a teenager uh, and survived actually the, the Battle of Britain. Uh, he grew up in Coventry, which if you ever see a lot of times in books, when they show the decimation of the Battle of Britain, it's a picture of Coventry because that town was just leveled. Um, you know, his mom was killed, for instance. So my friend's grandmother was killed during the bombing raids. Um, he actually, I'm going to go on a tangent again, but it's a cool, it's a story, but he said, yeah, um, occasionally the Germans would fly a single plane overhead and they would just sky write a big question mark in the sky over the, over the town to say, maybe tonight they're coming to bomb or not. They're just part of their psychological warfare that they would do. Um, and he, I went camping with him, uh, my friend and his father a couple of times and it stormed thunderstorms. He couldn't sleep. He was up all night, you know, the, yeah. the the thunders, yeah, he just had the PTSD of the bombs dropping. But the long story short is when he, he was old enough to serve, uh, he served in the, um, the African, the North African theater of the war, which is pretty much where a lot of this uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was filmed. So I got to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark with a guy who is at least, you know, tangentially familiar with that environment. And he was just of a different generation, um, clearly. Uh, there's a very famous scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's probably one of my favorite memories of being there with him uh, where, you know, it's a chase scene through uh, this town and uh, Indiana Jones is confronted by this sword wielding guy. And he's, with, he's, you know, he's flashing the sword around and it's all crazy and uh, doing figure eights, you know, like he's gonna, and, and he just pulls out his gun and shoots him. I've and, seen that scene. They've shown yeah, that on TV. Yeah, it's, it's iconic. It's a great scene, but I remember my friend's father belly laughing out loud when that happened, you know, because none of us knew it was common. You know, now it's it's kind of cliche. Everybody's seen it. But yeah. it was kind of cool to see this this older, you know, man who's kind of, you know, from a different generation. Just that joke hit home for him, too. Like it was just like one of those universally hilarious uh, moments. So I just have a very warm feeling about that movie. Um, and that's another one with the stunts, too. Like, you know, there's there's a scene where. Uh, there's a fight on a, a, a troop transport truck and there's a stuntman who's crawling, you know, off the hood of the truck, under the truck and around back. And there's a guy doing it. You know, that's amazing to me, the in-camera stunt work. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like nowadays, if you saw it, you know, if it would have the same impact, you know, some movies, it's still a, a very fun, good movie, but I don't know if the, the freshness of it too, some of it's lost. Um, in a lot of ways, that movie was like a throwback to the serials of like the 40s, you know, just an adventure film, you know, with evil Nazis, uh, which, you know, uh, I think there was a long time where that wasn't a, a theme again in movies. So, uh, like, what about comedies? Do you, do you have any comedies you like? Oh, well, you know, the, the Smoking a Bandit was hysterical. There was a movie called The Party with uh, Peter Sellers. Of course, Airplane was just unbelievably funny. Uh, 
with those gags. Now it's a dated movie, you know, because some of those gags were for the time. They weren't um, exactly uh, racially sensitive, but. <laughs> well, that's Blazing Saddles there with with that too. With that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, no, they there. Oh yeah, there was. Uh, but you know, a lot of funny comedies. Um, well, you were in my neighborhood. You were all the way around my neighborhood. You were everywhere, right? And much hasn't really changed. There were no movie theaters ever anywhere near there. So um, in order for me to go see a movie, you, you had to drive. I mean, for a brief time, there was a movie theater downtown called the Hippodrome that I could get to by a bus. But upstairs of the hip, or I think it was either upstairs or downstairs, I forget now, was Danny Vase Pool Hall. But, um, yeah, so that's why that's another reason why I didn't get to see movies like you may have or others, because we didn't have any around. We didn't have the money to go see these movies. Um, so the only other option would be to go to the mall, go to a mall um, or something. And many times it was just impractical to do. Um, but, yeah, I remember laughing out loud at, uh, um you know, that kind of, you know, like I say, Smokey and the Bandit 1 and 2 was really, really funny. Uh, I can't even think right now because but if you named them, I would probably say, oh, yeah, uh, I remember that. But Airplane was generally considered like for the longest time, that was considered the funniest movie ever made. I mean, it just was hysterical. Yeah, I remember that being kind of like uh, one of those movies when it was out. It just like everybody was talking about it yeah. like you know everybody was doing the bits everybody was like it just it's one of those like cultural moments where uh i don't think anything had been done like that where the just the joke density you know uh yeah it was really kind of a, it was a masterpiece honestly yeah um, then you have like uh <clears throat> um uh animal house and uh caddyshack later on the, the jerk with steve no uh steve martin uh, those were all the big, bigger ones that I can think of in my day. I'm probably forgetting some late 70s, early 80s. I don't. But we came out like my time came out with the stupid funny movies like stupid, like Up the Academy, uh, Porky's, Revenge of the Nerds. You know, those were the kind of cinematic classic masterpieces <laughs> of comedy in my day and age. So I um, <clears throat> I wasn't, you know, I did, wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> Porky's played a role in my upbringing, but it wasn't comedy. It was most more of a. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, we don't need. We got to keep this clean. Yeah, um, but uh, I, I love American Pie. I like that one. Yeah, that's a fairly recent one. Well, God, that talk about time years. flying. I bet you that's probably twenty 15, years. Twenty years. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Um, uh, what about Young Frankenstein? Did you like that movie? Oh, Marty Feldman. Yeah, that was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. That's a classic, just a, a masterpiece, you know. And it's it's cool that, like, a spoof of another movie. I, I love the original Frankenstein. I, I mean, I like a lot of older, you know, black and white, uh, you know, atmospheric movies, noir movies, horror movies. Um, did you ever get into Monty Python? Did you like uh, The Holy Grail? I ne no, I never got into them. I never saw them. Um, but there was an Irish comedian that we got to see uh, as a kid called Dave Allen. He had a TV show. This is not movies now, but Dave Allen at large. And, of course, Benny Hill. Um, I, I don't think I've ever laughed as hard as I did at 
at Dave Allen at large. And of course, Benny Hill was awesome. Uh, not movies, but that was the extent of the British thing for me that I can think of. But no, I never saw, um, never got into the uh, Monty Python, not because I didn't like it. I just, I've never seen them. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I, I think we had, I think they did like the Benny Hill, Monty, or Dave Allen back to back thing here too. Was Dave Allen, did he always sit in a chair? And yeah, and he smoke? had his finger off and he would drink his booze. And, yeah, he was funny. Yeah, but I think at the end he'd always say, may your God, or something about, yeah. may your God go with you or something. But he would do like a sketch, a variety sketch show. It was back to back. I need to go back and watch some of those Benny Hills. Those, <laughs> it was like the Three Stooges with uh, Smut, you know. They can't make those anymore. Um, I think he used to say, thank you, good night, and may your God go with you or something. You yeah, know? I, had, I just had a vague, it was like this oddly dry kind of classy way of saying goodbye. Well, he was very anti-Catholic. That, that was what, you know, he was, uh, but he was technically, I don't know what his religious beliefs were. I don't, I don't care. I, I didn't psychoanalyze. It was just some of that stuff was just hysterical to me. Really, really funny. Um, yeah, I remember when I found out that he died, I was kind of sad, you know, uh, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Benny Hill was more slapstick, just, you know, with all the pretty girls. And, and, and that was a whole nother uh, thing, you know, uh, which was great. But uh, Benny Hill was in a couple of movies. I know that he was in, I think, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, they said. That was a cool movie, too, by the way. Willy Wonka is like a, is a kid movie. It's got some disturbing shit in it, too. But uh, I, again, I never saw it. So, I mean, that's oh, Gene really? Wilder. Yeah, I'm a big Gene Wilder fan. I like him. He's a good guy. Was a good guy. Uh, but yeah, that was a fun movie growing up as a kid. Uh, and also, like, see, now a lot of it, so. A lot of my films I just caught on television growing up. So like, yeah. um, and that was the one thing that like, so like when the Wizard of Oz would come on once a year or whatever, that was always like a big event, you know, like we'd make sure to make, you know, cause you couldn't see it again. If it was gone, there was no VHS or DVD or streaming. So you had one shot, you know, this is it to see it. So that became like an annual event for us. I love that movie as a kid growing up. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, tons of favorite movies. Well, I always thought What About Bob was a funny movie. Okay, that's not when I wasn't a kid when that came out. But, you know, that I used to like to watch that when it was on. Um, you know, now, of course, you know, I probably had it, you know. Uh, but, yeah. And, again, movies to me are always like food. You know, like what uh, what do I have a taste for today? You know, what do I want to watch? Um, and it, it's it's... I think I've lost a lot of my zest in life. You know, my, my naivety is gone. That's for sure. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to really find movies that, that I could sit there and say that I would like enjoy or want to watch. So I tend to end up watching the same movies that I know I like over and over because I don't have to think, you know, I could just sit back and kind of immerse myself and it transcends me. It takes me away from where we're at now, 2021 then it'll put me in another time, you know, another frame uh, of life. And, you know, that's what I like about, again, a lot of the older movies. Uh, they'll take me back to a more, a fake, innocent time, okay? We know, well, maybe we don't know, but we should know that, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s were not a great, really a great time in life for a lot of people, right? But we wax nostalgia and we think, Oh, yeah, it was such a better time. Well, <clears throat> I'm not so certain about all of that. 
but I, I can tell you this much. It, it's a fantasy in a way. You can pretend that you're escaping to a, a, a different or a better time when in reality it may not have been. So I, I tend to gravitate towards that more than anything right now. Well, for sure, escapism is a, is a big part of it. It allows you to check out at least for a little bit and enjoy something. Um, oh, you know, comedies. What about the Marx Brothers? Did you ever get into those guys? Only when they were on television, which wasn't often. Um, uh, yeah, we could, they, would, they would show black and whites now and then. Uh, of the Marx Brothers, uh, we used to get shows like, again, this TV, um, uh, Leon Errol, I don't know if you were familiar with him, the Dead End Kids, Bowery Boys. Oh, Bowery Boys, I remember. Abbott and Costello, and then I saw their movies, uh, Three Stooges movies and TV episodes, The Little Rascals. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought the, the, the Marx Brothers, I just thought Groucho was just a very funny guy. Oh, he's hilarious. Yeah, I think Duck Stoop is maybe like, it's like the Citizen Kane of comedy movies. It was way ahead of its time, honestly. Uh, you, you didn't see anything as surreal and weird as that movie until probably Monty Python in the 70s. I mean, because there's just a, lyric, a weird period where, like you mentioned, Abbott and Costello. And I mean, they were funny guys, but they just didn't do weird, you know, uh, wacky stuff like you'd see really inventive stuff. So yeah, if you, if someone hasn't seen duck soup, go out and see it. It's, it's surprisingly good consider it was made like in the thirties. Uh, but yeah, Groucho, the whole group was hilarious. Um, real national treasure. Those guys were, um, well, Lou Costello, a little fight tie in Lou Costello. I think his real name was Priscilla. He was Italian. Um, he had a bodyguard, and his bodyguard's name was Pat Comiskey, who was a heavyweight boxing uh, contender. And Comiskey actually did some acting. He was in several movies, uh, normally the heavy uh, bit parts here or there. Uh, he was in um, The Harder They Fall, which was a great fight movie, Humphrey Bogart, uh, loosely based on um, Primo Canera. Max Bear was in the movie, and Pat Comiskey's in that movie. He you, they, they show him fighting and so on. And um, he's in essence playing the role of Ernie Schaff. But anyway, yeah, he was big, hulking, you know, flat nose, you know, you name it. Uh, but yeah, he was Lou Costello's bodyguard. So figured that'd be like a little uh, tie-in to our normal talks about fighting. Well, speaking about fighting, what was that uh, Bronson movie that you liked? That one? Hard Time. Knuckle. Hard, Hard time. time. Yeah, what are, I guess... I'm trying to think of other lesser known fight movies that maybe people should check out though. Like do you, any other ones come to mind? Well, that I can't think of the name of it, but that Robert Ryan movie that I told you about where he's actually fighting real time. He was a, a, a boxer and uh, champion, I think in the even college or something like that in the military. Um, and I'm sorry, I just don't recall the name right now because I get caught off guard. Uh, uh, well, I see the thing is, there were actors probably even back then that are boxers or fighters that became actors. I kind of like it sometimes when you get an actor like Carl Weathers, right? Who wasn't a boxer, wasn't a fighter, but he whipped himself into shape. He worked out. He, he looked passable, right? You probably wouldn't know. Um, but yeah, I can't think off the top of my head of any other fight move. I'm sure they're out there. I guess you could kind of talk about, uh, I don't know if you want to get into Clint Eastwood movies where he was fighting all the time, uh, any which way you can, every, you know, uh, 
uh, and all, you know, what's a chipmunk uh, or what's a chimpanzee, <laughs> orangutan, whatever it was. Um, I don't, I don't really remember because uh, I really didn't watch those movies. I wasn't a big, uh, now I wasn't a Clint Eastwood fan. I, I did like Charles Bronson. Um, I, ironically, in that hard times, uh, I, I remember reading that the director or the producer, probably the director, said, you know. They could only film about 30 to 45 second scenes because even though Bronson looked ripped and looked in shape, he was such a heavy smoker. He had no endurance. OK, so he you know, he couldn't you couldn't do an extended fight scene with them. They had to kind of film those scenes, you know, like I said, 30 to 45 seconds because he was gassed. But he sure was rock hard. You know, he was a coal miner for a while from Pennsylvania, not far from where my, uh, you know, my dad was from. If you see Bronson, some of the earlier films, he was big too. Like, like by the seventies, I think he started to lose weight. Okay. Um, but I saw some films of him in the fifties. He was a big dude. I mean, at least he looked solid. Um, I think he boxed a little, not maybe competitively, but he did boxing training. Um, you know, which probably, you know, that was the big thing. Boxing, maybe some wrestling back then. There were, you know, martial arts really didn't take over until the later fifties and sixties, really. Um, then, of course, you had the guys that trained a lot with Bruce Lee, you know, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Coburn, Steve McQueen. Uh, and I'm sure there was others uh, that, you know, I, I, I don't follow that. You should know more. You were in the JKD more, you know. But, yeah, it, uh, there was a Blood in the Sun, which was a, Jane, talk about fight movies, James Cagney did this. It was right, right around the World War II era time, maybe the early 50s, late 40s. And there was a lot of judo in that movie. Now, James Cagney alleged, allegedly had a black belt in judo. I don't know. He did do some of his own judo moves in that movie. If I, it's been a lot of years since I saw it. But I, I also remember there was obviously stunt doubles um, as well. But yeah, that's an old, uh, you know, that some people claim may have been the first martial art movie because it's heavily, there was a lot of judo apparently in the movie. Again, I don't remember. Um, yeah, I know exactly the movie you're talking about. And I think you can actually find on YouTube that the, the big finale fight scene where he uh, has a big judo match. You know, it's kind of a mix of boxing and judo, uh, you know, with the big, I guess, Japanese like villain. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I agree that, that a lot of people consider that one of the, the first uh, martial arts films. For sure, Western ones that has a focus on martial arts. Oh, yeah, well, that's what I meant. West, I'm sure that maybe even in the 30s, there may have been some, you know, thrown in. Uh, I know that there was some pro wrestling type of movies. You know, there was wrestlers that acted and did things, uh, you know, for sure. But, uh, yeah, to me, it's like there was like Naked City, right? Uh, I think that's what it was called. Um, that uh, there was Stanislaus Zabisco was in the movie, okay? And he wrestled. Um and he, he wrestled against Mike Mazurki. Um, they ended up remaking it later in the 70s or 80s and got rid of the wrestling. I think it was more boxing oriented. Um, but um, I forgot the name of it. The Naked in the City, Naked in the City or something like that. I used to know all this from the top of my head, but I don't, I don't remember things. Um, but when you see that, I mean, the first thing that I thought of when I saw it was, wow, Zabisco's small guy. You know, I mean, he was big but short really short um which yeah i was i always just assumed you know that he was a six footer or something like that but he, he wasn't but he was still thick 
you know, you could tell at one point, but he moved, you know, real slow. He was an older guy. I don't know how old he was probably in his sixties, you know, but yeah, he just moved slowly, but it was a pretty cool scene. It was a pretty good fight scene, to be honest. Um, kind of like an MMA scene, you know, boxing or I mean a wrestling, but with, with the punches and stuff thrown in and, you know, some submission attempts and so on, nothing extravagant. Um, but yeah, that, that was another movie that had a couple, you know, had a nice scene in it. Of, and I'm sure there was others. You ever remember the Thin Man movies? Yeah. Uh, th those are more like a romantic comedy, like whodunit um, movies. But the reason I bring it up is in the second Thin Man movie, uh, there's a scene where the, the protagonist, the main couple comes home. They're, they're like, the husband's a retired detective and the wife's just rich and they just go from, they solve crimes going from parties. It's just kind of a fun, like escapist movies for back in the day. And it was written by like, I think the first one was written by Dashiell Hammett, maybe. He was a big noir guy. But long story short, they returned to their home where, uh, you know, they were out traveling. And they come home and there's a giant party going on at their house that they were not aware of. But as they're going through the house, um, there's a group of guys, like a pro wrestling group, and they're talking and shoving each other around. And uh, one of the guys puts a double wrist lock on the other guy, and you can see it. I don't think nice. there was a twist on the wrist lock, but uh, it was no. one of those things I was watching with. I was like, Ben, check this out. <laughs> yeah, well, now I just come to me. I think it was called Night in the City. That's the, the uh, movie that I'm talking about with uh, Richard Widmark was the star of the movie, and it was filmed or based in England. Um, but, yeah, uh, well, I don't want to get – we're not going to talk about wrestling so much today, but just remember, most of those guys back then did not know the real deal hooking or anything like that. They knew the, the show holes, and while, yes, they would work on the uninitiated, just like I try to tell people today, most of your street fights where people are getting knocked out – they're not getting knocked out by professional fighters, okay? They're getting knocked out with wild punches or, you know, punches that are not technically proper, but they will still work if they land. And that's the comparison with these submission holds and, and shit that a lot of guys are passing off. They're, they'll work. They're not elite, you know, against a guy who's physical, you, you know, it's, they're going to get out of these holds. But, yeah, I used to, as a kid, watch – some things where I think there was an Abbott and Costello, it may have been, or a Three Stooges movie where there was some sort of wrestling going on. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is I already knew how to wrestle by then. I'm like, oh, my God, no, you know, no, 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 not 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 good. Or it might even have been the Hercules movie or so the Hercules on chain, like the second Hercules movie with Primo Canera. Um, <laughs> it might have been that one where I, there was some fight thing going on and it just was like, oh. So the Stooges were really good for effective ripping. Huh? What? The, Sto the Stooges had more authentic Yeah, ripping. right, Mo. Yeah, Mo <laughs> especially. He was good. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of funny when, when you have to look back at that and say that's probably more realistic than a lot of the movies, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But just like you say with that figure eight in the Raiders of the Lost Ark and the guy pulling out the gun. It's about as real as it gets. I mean, because that's how it was on the streets, man. They're not going to part around with all this crazy shit. They're just going to blast you away. <laughs> you know, even today, you know, with the drive-by shootings and stuff like that, you can have all these skills, but boy, if the guy's, you know, he's got the drop on you, man, it's all over. But uh, 
No, that's the beautiful thing about movies. You know, movies um, are like are like are like a good book. You know, uh, you can immerse yourself in it. That's why I used to say about the James Bond movies, the older ones. You know, the uh, Sean Connery and uh, uh, Roger Moore. The movies themselves were, eh, you know, even as a kid, they were kind of ridiculous in a way. But it was the beauty of the locations that they shot at for me, you know, getting to see different parts of the world, you know, Italy or Greece or Europe or what have you, uh, different parts of America that got me out of the ghetto kind of thing. Uh, Because most of the television shows were either idyllic, the Brady Bunch, you know, Southern California where it never rains, uh, or they were the grimy grit that I was used to, you know, Chicago or uh, New York cop shows and, and things like that, or just crime shows that just showed kind of like just nothing that I could really relate to. Um, but yeah, but the James Bond flicks, I used to always want to watch them because yeah, you're going to see a beautiful, beautiful women and you're going to see beautiful locations. You're going to see wealth in a way, you know, cause Bond always dressed nice and, you know, uh, drove a nice car and this, so that, that was kind of nice for me. I'm not saying for anybody else, but that was like my escape. And even to this day, I still watch the old ones. I have every Bond movie except for the latest one um, because of just that, that reason. It just, you know, they're, they're painful to watch if you're trying to really like get into the movie. But uh, yeah, the scenery and stuff is just, the locations are, are just fantastic. And it, you know, I like it for that reason alone. Yeah, there's something about the nostalgia of the older ones and, and like the vintage look and feel, like kind of, uh, it's just fun to watch 60s movies, just the look and feel of them, as, even if the plot is completely ridiculous. You know, even if, you know, Roger Moore is going to take off with a, uh, well, not Roger Moore, but like Sean Connery, I think in Thunderball, he does like a jetpack scene where he jumps. It's like, it's ridiculous, but it's still, it's kind of fun because it's like I said, it's, it's vintage futurism, you know. And uh, well, let let me on that note with the Roger Moore. This pertains more to him than it does Sean Connery because now that I'm old <laughs> and I'm older than Roger Moore in those movies, just him. I mean, he looks old. I, the first movie, okay, he kind of looked all right. Then he ended up ultimately getting plastic surgery and everything. But there was one movie, and I don't remember what it was that he was in that the lead actress absolutely steadfastly refused to show, to have any love scenes with him. And she went public about this. She said, this is ridiculous. He's my dad's age. There's just no way I would find this man attractive. And, and I see that now. I see Roger Moore. I mean, and he looks like old, older than what he really was. And he's still getting all these younger girls, 20, 25 years old, uh, 25 years younger. Uh, it, and yes, I know that sometimes that happens in the real world, but it, it's it's ridiculous. And I actually cringe, you know, when I see that because it 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 borders on the dirty old man, creepy old man thing. And uh, you know, I'm I'm all about you know trying to stay fit and dressing nice when I go out and looking you know looking as good as I can, but for my age. And I know my limitations. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say younger women haven't approached me. They have. But generally, I try to stay in a, you know, a very narrow mind, you know, age group. Now, I don't go out now at all because of my mom's situation. But when I did, I, I like to kind of keep it, you know, focused on 
somebody closer to my age. So when 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 Sean Connery was starring in it, he was relatively still young. He may have been in his 30s. So for him to game on a 28-year-old, or 20, that's fine. Okay, here's probably a 10-year window there, which, okay. But Jane, uh, Roger Moore was just, man, it just was, it was getting to the point of, it's cringeworthy. Yeah, I never, I don't go back. and watch, The first Bond movie I ever saw as a kid was a Roger Moore movie. Uh, but then I went back and watched the Sean Connery ones. And those are the ones I like. I like Sean Connery. I also like uh, the new guy, Daniel Craig. He's kind of, uh, uh, I enjoy those movies too. The, the first one, Casino Royale, was very good. Uh, I think it was almost kind of um, the Bond franchise re- rebooting itself because of the Jason Bourne movies. There's kind, there's kind of been like a modern uh, view or like aesthetic for, uh, you know, spy movies. And, and you can't really go back. You can't go back to... Um, uh, the Roger Moore kind of car, you know, comic book ridiculousness because uh, it's, it's just been made, you know, too much fun of with like Austin Powers and things. It's, you, you can't go back to that. So um, yeah, I'd be, I know I don't, I don't think you've seen any of the uh, Daniel Craig movies, but it'd be interesting to see your take on it because they have I did see kind the of one, the one you just mentioned. Um, oh, the, the Casino Royale. Royale. Um, what I liked about the Roger Moore, the cinematography was better than the James than uh, Sean Connery ones. Uh, I remember in the uh, Casino Royale one, that's one where he was having that heart attack or whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, I had a hard time. I'm not a Daniel Craig guy. I mean, I, I just, um, I have a hard time for me looking at him as a, uh, you know, spy, just as I do with. Uh, uh, Roger Moore. Uh, I, I actually thought that George Lazenby would have been really good. He showed some emotion. Um, there was a scene in his movie where, you know, on His Majesty's Secret Service, where he was like shaken. He was like scared. He showed a human element. Now, granted, that was his first acting role, and I guess there was things going on. I'm not going to get into it because I don't know. I'm just you know, what I heard. Uh, it's a shame that they didn't develop that. That didn't work out with him because I thought that he had the physicality. To me, he looked the part. He was the most athletic out of all of them. He could actually look like he could fight. Uh, he was, you know, well, you know, a good-sized guy. Um, and it's just a shame that, you know, that petered out. Um, I yeah, he, that, Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of my favorites. That's, that's yeah. one of the great bombs. That's the first one where they do, like, any of the skiing stuff. And uh, Diana Riggs in there, too, which is yeah. a bonus. Yeah, well, you know, I guess she didn't get along with him, but um, I couldn't get Pierce Brosnan. I, I get why they would want him. I get it. Um, now, I just kept looking at him as the dingbat, like from Remington Steel. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Timothy Dalton, I don't know what to think of him. He just, I don't know, he, his looks just kind of, he just, you know, I don't know. There was something, I, I think that he was probably the best actor. I think he has the most credentials. Uh, he was a Shakespearean actor and so on. So from the from a talent standpoint, I think he could he had it. Um, I I I don't know what happened there. I, I thought I used to know at one point that w- there was some hang up with filming rights or something. And then by the time that all got ironed out, which was a a few year process, he just moved on to other things. Um, 
But yeah, I, you know, I don't watch the James Bond movies and I never did for, for any like intellectual uh, stimulation. It was, I told you, it was, for me, it was always about the beauty of it, uh, the escape of it. uh, And, uh, you know, for me, that's what I liked about it. I never saw this burn movie thing. I never saw the Matrix. I'm telling you, I live in a shell. I never seen any of these movies. Okay. This John Wick guy. I don't know. I don't even know what that is. I never saw any of those movies. I don't, <laughs> I, don't I don't have any idea. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of out of the loop with, with all of that. I, I you know I'm an old school guy in certain ways, but I, I got to get with it, I guess. But it just has, it just isn't happening. <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll close things up kind of with your observation about like part of it. Part of the issue is when you know you've spent a lifetime of watching movies and you've seen a lot of good ones. You know, like the ones we mentioned, like The Godfather, other other classics like that, you know, um, it starts to get hard to impress you. You know, once you've, you know, once you've seen dozens of some of the best movies, uh, you know, your run of the mill movies, the ones that they just churn out, it becomes very hard and uh, to be impressed. And that's one of the downsides is I think you become a lot more uh, critical of a viewer, you know, um, quality wise. Yeah, and I think, too, part of it is you get to know the actors' personal lives. Like, you'll see these guys, all of a sudden, they're all ripped and cut because they're on drugs. You know, they, they do the, the the growth hormone, the all of that. Uh, they have that little code word. We talked about it once before about what it is that they eat. I forgot those three. They all say the same thing. But, you know, they're cheating to get fit. They're not – this is not really them. Um so I think we know a little bit too much about their personal lives, you know, uh, whereas when you watch an old movie, you'll see character actors in them that I don't even know their names. I know nothing about them, you know, and I just, in my opinion, think the level of acting is just so much better generally than what we have today. I'm not saying every actor we have stinks, um, but just, I just see when I watch, uh, some of these older movies or even old TV shows uh, from the 70s, you have older actors on there that are, are doing like a limited script, yet they, you could see their emotions. You could, you know, they're selling this part. It, it's, it, you know, you, you, they're believable. Um, whereas I think sometimes today it's more about the special effects or it's about uh, tricks, camera tricks, you know, zoom in, zoom out, crazy angles, this and that. And, just it the focus is off the acting and it's more focused on the whole environment and i don't know it just for me now this is only me i don't like it i cannot relate to it you know i i just i just can't so that's i think what makes it bad for me it it's a shame that i feel this way but i can tell you many years ago when i was still a jobbing musician uh, I had more than one girl say they didn't want to go out to hear a band with me. They wouldn't do it anymore because I was too critical. Oh, that drummer sucks or the keyboard player. He played the wrong changes. I ruined the experience for them, right? Because I knew how it really should be done and I couldn't separate. I guess I'm an idealist, right? This is the way it should be. This is the elite level and we're not getting at here. And I think that's how I look at some of the movies, not all, but you know, many of the actors and the, just the things in general. It's just too fake. It's just too over the top. And, you know, um, I don't know if you can act. You know, it's all the it's all the craziest effects. 
yeah, I just, I, I'm not into it. That, but that's just me now. That's me being me. And I, I'm not saying my way's the right way. I'm on a, I'm a castaway. I'm on the outside looking in. I, I wish I could enjoy these movies. I can't. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to your earlier point about it depends what you're in the mood for. If you know, hey, I just, you know, today I'm not looking for, you know, steak and potatoes. Today I'm just, you know, today I just want to get a Sunday. I just want to get something light, you know, or just something fun. Uh, so it depends what mood you're going in for. And I do think that, um, you know, to kind of mess with this, carry this analogy further is that I do think the market shifted at some point where they realized people just want to eat junk food, you know, that the majority of the market is for buying junk food. Uh, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that maybe ground zero for that was like um, Top Gun, where it was all glitz and beautiful people. Because prior to that, a lot of the movies in the 70s were actors who didn't necessarily look beautiful. You know, they were good actors. You know, they talked about the new holiday, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood. It was, you had, you know, all kinds of uh, heavy movies. But I think, um, you know, it is a business. And I do think, I mean, to your point is that I, I think the majority of the market is out there just for, you know, uh, all flash and no substance. And so if that's what you want at the moment, cool. You know, they've got options for you. But even that sometimes can be superficial. Sometimes they can just throw special effects at it and it still doesn't necessarily make a fun movie. So, And there's uh, and some of it is a big investment like, Okay, they'll make a sequel or a remake, I should say, which who wants to see that? But there, these, some of these are franchises. This Fast and Furious or something. I never seen it, not one of them. But why would I? Because I, now I got to watch nine more of them or how many? You know, <laughs> you know, just like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. How many are, are there? Star Wars. I never saw Star Wars. But how many Star Wars sequels are there? Ten, eight, five? I don't know. This is a lot, you know, because you got to, then now you got to watch all of that shit. No, 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 no. Just give me a movie like the best years of our lives. This is one and done. Or even like, um, you know, The Godfather. I don't need to watch part three. One and two is fine. You know, I, I can sit through that. Uh, so, yeah, so for me, it's sometimes it would be just like, you know, too big of an investment. You know, um, like when I go on the Internet to check my email or something, you know, I see these the news things pop up and it's this friggin' uh, um, what's the guy's name? The ball headed guy that thinks he's Vin Diesel. He's crying about trying to make up with, uh, you know, Dwayne Johnson and shit because, you know, they had a falling out over some movie. Oh, please, man, you know, let's make this movie. Uh, come on. You know, you're, you're supposed to play some tough guy on TV and yet around the movies. And yet in real life, you're crying. You're whining. All right. Come on. Get over it. You know, uh, it just loses all of it to me. I, I don't watch these movies. I, don't, I, I, I have no desire to watch them, you know just let me watch Mannix and Cannon and all the old, you know, streets of San Francisco. I'll be happy. You know, the whole, the original Hawaii Bible. I'm okay. Uh, goodbye. You know, that's it. I, I live in my own world. Let me be. <laughs> so that's why I'm single, I guess. You know. <laughs> but anyway, I guess we should wrap it up. Um, it's, we've been going at about an hour and a half. That's cool. I want to thank you again, Joe. I thought it was kind of lighthearted today. That's good. I sure, sure did miss out on a lot of my movies that I do like, but uh, we hit the main ones. I hope you have a pleasant week. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up soon. Our holidays are among us, you know, um, holiday season. So thanks again. No, it was fun talking and, and hearing the films that you like and influenced you. So, um, yeah, this is Joe and Tony signing off. We'll see you guys at the movies.
<laughs> See you guys.